kick off episode 380 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Mugsy. It comes from a band out of Portsmouth, Virginia. The band's called Lucky 757. The album is Lonesome Lagoon. You can find them at lucky757.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes. When you're done listening to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, my name is Derek M. Cook, your writer, producer, and host of Monster Kid Radio. Welcome to the show. I don't know about you where you're at, but where I'm at, we're having a heat wave. It's unnaturally hot here in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon. Man, it's been in the 90s all day, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse, man. What am I going to do to try to cool off? Well, listening to surf music does it. I'll give you that. Turning on the air conditioning, that'll do it. But thinking about a cooler time of year, that oftentimes helps. So this time around, on this episode of Monster Kid Radio, we're having Christmas in July, when we talk about a Laurel and Hardy film, March of the Wooden Soldiers, also known as Babes in Toyland. Yeah, it's a kind of sort of Christmas movie, but it takes place in the month of July. It's all relevant. It'll all make sense. There are monsters in it, and we're going to talk about that with one of my favorite monsters, uh, um, minions, I mean, um, co-hosts, Steve Turek. Steven Turek has been a part of the show for a little while now. He was one of the guys who helped me out immensely at Monster Bash. He's also the man behind the top 100 monster movies list, and he'll be doing that again next year as well. We'll talk about that on a future episode, because this time around, we're talking about this Laurel and Hardy movie. Yeah, I know, kind of crazy, but I'm looking forward to it. That's not all you're getting in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. We have a weird Wednesday report coming in from my man, Jeff Pullier. And Jeff, thank you for doing this every time you call all in it just helps out so much in fact listeners the day that i'm recording this well it's a wednesday night and wednesday is weird wednesday night and jeff actually sent me a message it's like yeah i'll come by and pick you up if you want to come down to the joy cinema with me for weird wednesday and, and one why would i do that when i've got a guy like jeff who's always calling in with his own weird wednesday report it's like i'm already there but two i had to finish the show so i appreciate that jeff and i appreciate your calling in so we're going to be sharing that with the listeners also we have another installment of michael dodd's the vault of monster collectibles as read by my wife brenda we've got a lot to get to in this week's episode so why don't we go ahead and get into everything right after this Stars. Prisoner will receive a minimum of 64 years. 64 years? What about my life? The personal life is dead on the moon. Brutalized <laughs> and savaged by creatures who are only half men. How was your first night, Chloe? Did you sleep well? Yes, I did. Strange. No one ever sleeps well here at Beswick. <laughs> <laughs> and women who are more than all women. Now, remove your garments. Right now? Don't be shy. 
You're among friends. Now, only one woman can rescue them from the warden who maims tender bodies for his own selfish ends. Do you know what the warden's nickname for me is? Chopstick! <gasps> A talent show? Yeah. The show will be our cover. While half of us rehearse, the other half will be digging beneath the stage. The warden will kill us all dead. Who is in my Suppose I tell the warden about this plan. Then I'll whoop your ass. But I sure as hell am not gonna die 100,000 years after I'm supposed to. We're not gonna let any of you out of our sight from now on. Even in the showers? Especially in the showers. This summer, get ready. Guns, women, pineapples, catfights, golden suits, thousands in the cast, millions in the making. Girls on the Moon! Suggested for mature audiences. It's gonna be awesome! Hi, this is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans... Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horrors Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. gentlemen, you will soon behold a sight so strange, so horrifying, so utterly monstrous, we dare you to look. Look if you must, this is She-Freak. You have just entered the alley of a thousand nightmares. Here behind the tinsel of a monster midway, you will discover She-Freak. A demented thing with the soul of a woman and a diabolical plot for hideous revenge. If you can take it, see, she freak. But heed this warning. <laughs> if you reveal the barbaric hate-filled ending, you too will end up in the geek pit. She freak. <laughs> Appalling in color. Derek and the Monster Kids, this is Jeff Buller calling with a weird Wednesday update. And I'm talking about last Wednesday's feature. Are you ready for this? The saga of the Viking women and their voyage to the waters of the Great Sea Serpent. I'd like to see more, but I think that title took all three minutes. Uh, seriously, though, this is a Roger Corman film. It's black and white. 
The plot is that most of the men from this Viking village have disappeared. They've been gone quite a while, and the women uh, who have been taking care of themselves very well decide they need to go and find them. And so they build their own ship. They set off on the journey. They find where their men have been captured and enslaved, and eventually uh, everyone breaks free of the the society that has enslaved them. Now. That sounds pretty cool, and it's a cool idea. But despite a mostly female cast and some women who are really capable of handling themselves and digging mine out of the gutter, this movie doesn't even pass the Bechdel test. There is no conversation between women that doesn't involve talking about men. And despite the fact that these women have been able to handle their society, take care of their village for, I think, a couple of years at this point. All they can talk about is how they need to find their men and they need their guys. And it just, it's really a letdown in that way. This could have been such a great movie. Uh, it remade, it could be a great movie. I mean, it would still be a B movie, I think, but it wouldn't be such a letdown. So that's last week's movie. Uh, it was fun at points, you know, there's some good humor, uh, but there's a lot of misogyny in it. This week, uh, tonight in fact, since I'm calling a month on Wednesday, uh, it's Paul Nashie. It's Werewolf vs. the Vampire Women. And I know that Derek is Nashie deficient, but I am a huge Paul Nashie fan. I've seen this before at Weird Wednesday at the Joy, I'm seeing it again tonight, I love it, I'm so excited to uh, call and talk about this after I've seen it again. So I hope you're all having a great, monstrous week. Take care. of their own making, sleek and win fast, Viking women set out to combat the unknown terrors of uncharted seas. In spite of the fables told of the gigantic, the gargantuan, the fearsome great sea serpent. After unbelievable adventures, they reach the land of Stark the Cruel, the vicious, who holds men captive and Viking women chattels. turning them over to men who take women in pursuit of violent pleasures. Pleasures that must end in the thrust of the spear into warm flesh. See the dance of desire, prelude to orgiastic revelries that only ancient civilizations knew. Know the best elements of women and the worst appetites of men. But one of the Viking women has the evil serpent of jealousy in her heart. I have much to offer a man. That's true. And someday I hope you will choose a worthy warrior for your mate. Kill them. Kill them both. See, the fires of hate flare into the consuming flame of Hades. See, Vikings choose the terrors of the great sea serpent to that of the Grimald savages. See the lost legend of the great sea serpent. 
soon to this theater. A ghastly, ghoulish, and totally incredible motion picture. The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. Satan's favorite mistress. Werewolves and vampires will reign supreme, and things will happen that have never been seen by human beings. Your blood will boil and your flesh will crawl. and no one can run from the werewolves. If you can take it, see the most sensational fight to the finish ever filmed. See the werewolf versus the vampire woman. Hello everyone, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes, now... What is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. <laughs> yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. 
So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. So, listeners, Steve Turek, he's been on the show quite a bit, and he was at Monster Bash with me. He did the whole top 100 thing, the top 20 Vincent Price thing. He was the man that spearheaded all that, and I haven't had him on the show. I haven't really talked to him a lot since Monster Bash. Steve, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good, Derek. I'm having fun, just um, waiting for the next bash, which for me is going to be when they do the uh, monster movie bash, the giant monster movies in August. So I'll be back out there. Again, for those, for Godzilla, them, the giant clone, all that stuff, eight different movies on the big screen. I'm looking forward to it. Man, oh man, I wish I could be there. <laughs> You'll just have to have enough fun for both of us, man. You always have all those fun things going on in Portland, Oregon that I get jealous of <laughs> that Chris McMillan constantly is posting. And it's making me think I'm living on the wrong side of the country. For once, once, a brief, shiny little time. I got some movie action on my area. Hey, there you go. There you go. Take advantage of it. Have fun. Call in. Let us know how it's going. Just have a blast, man. That'll be cool. That'll be cool. Well, my life post-Monster Bash, people kind of know what's going on with me and uh, just trying to find a way to change my career to something a little bit more podcasting-centric, audio-centric, that sort of thing. So we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But, you know, we, we, we have some podcasts to do, and Steve pitched this idea for this week's movie a while back. And at first I thought, Steve, what are you doing? Come on. <laughs> Come on. Really? You want to talk about a Laurel and Hardy movie on Monster Kid Radio? I mean, I get Abbott and Costello. They met all the monsters. But Laurel and Hardy. And then he mentions the movie March of the Wooden Soldiers, also known as Babes in Toyland. I'm thinking, isn't this a Christmas movie? He's like, yeah. Well, the movie actually takes place in the month of July, and <laughs> so I think it's fitting. And so we're kind of sort of having a Christmas in July episode, the final July episode of Monster Kid Radio this year. Why not? Let's talk about <laughs> this movie, which, man, I've got a lot of thoughts. i got a lot of thoughts here and, and a lot of things to ask Steve about. But before we get that, you know what we got to do. What's that, Derek? We got to play the Classic Five. Which for people looking for Christmas gifts, because it is Christmas in July, think about December, you can buy the Classic Five. <laughs> it is available. I do have the shipping figured out. $3. Here in the States, 3 bucks to have this sent to you. So let me know if you are interested in that. I'll mention it again at the end of the show. So I've got a deck of cards here for people who don't know, new listeners, people who haven't been paying attention. The Classic Five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, yes or no style question involving classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers. Call it a game. Call it an icebreaker. We call it the Classic Five. Are you ready, Steve? I'm ready, and I did not peek in my deck ahead of time, but I have no prep going into this. All right, here we go. Card number one. Oh, this actually comes from the Hammer Films expansion deck. Black and white hammer films or color hammer films? Oh, black or white or color. I have to go with color because hammer has always been known. There's big difference between universal is besides the um, the sex is the color with the blood and, and everything else sticking out. So when I think of hammer horror, I'm usually thinking of color and um, the gorgeous, lovely women that are in those movies. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, mean, I think some of their strongest movies were in black and white, but yeah, I hear you just because there's more color. Yeah, definitely. All right. Card number two from the core deck. What is your favorite Ed Wood film? That's a tough one. Um, I'm going to go 
Bride of the Monster. Bravo! Take the girl to my quarters. Go see, you know, and I mean, there's really not much to say about it. They're just, they're just enjoyable, fun little larks. They're not great. None of them are great, but I mean, it just brings a smile to your face and you enjoy it. You know, I've always viewed Bride of the Monster as the most quote-unquote real movie of his. That it feels like it could have come from a Poverty Row studio, maybe. Maybe. All right, card number three from the Universal Expansion deck. Speaking of black and white and color, if you had to colorize one Universal monster movie, which one would it be? And that is so interesting considering our movie of today. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, personally, I've, I've always wondered about this, like because color, black and white. I really firmly believe that leave it the way it is. I really don't think any of them should be colorized. If they were intended to be filmed and shown, in black and white. Mm -hmm. So the answer to your question is, I don't think any of them should be colorized. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Card number four. What about you? Yeah. Well, what, what about me? Think? Oh, I, I'm a purist. I don't want things colorized. I do recognize that sometimes the filmmakers may have wanted to do something in color and they just didn't have the budget or the technology to make it happen. So I get that. So when some of the Ray Harryhausen films, for example, come out, released, colorized, and Harryhausen was involved in the colorization process, well, it gets a little fuzzy for me. But I always go back to back in the day when I was renting videos from three or four different VHS rental stores in town, I ended up renting a copy of Night of the Living Dead colorized. And I thought, well, that could be interesting, especially since I knew the blood used in that movie was not red when they shot it. It was actually chocolate syrup. Oh man, the colored version of that film, they did not make the blood red. They kept it brown because I don't think somebody was paying attention in the, <laughs> in the computerization lab. They didn't realize what had been done. So I had a colorized version of Night of the Living Dead with chocolate syrup bleeding zombies. That, that, oh man, I've never seen the colorized version of, of Night of the Living Dead, and you just maybe not want it. Part of me does not want to see, there's, there's a small part of me, there's a small part of me that's almost, I just got to see a few minutes just to understand what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> not the whole film, but just cue it up to that spot where the zombies that you said are bleeding black. Yeah. I, so. I wish I could find that. Like I've looked online, I've gone through YouTube, I've scoured the internet. I can't find it anywhere. I, I don't know if it's just some small fly by night operation in the video store, picked it up for five bucks to make a buck or two, but I don't know, man, it was, it was pretty rough, but no, I, I prefer movies to be in their original state. All right. Card number four, check this out. This is from the monster bash deck. 
What's your favorite classic horror or suspense television series? Classic horror suspense television series? I'm going to go with Kolchak. Night Stalker. He covers the cases others dare not touch. A headless motorcycle rider swinging the sword. I, I believe you. And he will get his story at any cost. Why should we always accentuate the gruesome? Was Morton by any chance beheaded? Yes, and you could use a good trim yourself. He's not your average reporter. Another vanishing corpse. I tell you, we're in luck. And these are not your run-of-the-mill cases. This is one story I may not get to file in person because it's after me. He is the Night Stalker. Oh, above dark shadows. And I, it, it is tough. I ask you're, that you're, because I know you've recently gone through and watched the entire run of dark shadows. Yes, that is true. But I grew up watching those call checks and reruns and Darren McGavin. So great in that role. And I always, you and I've talked about this before. I think we both are drawn to the monster hunters. That's true. That's and true. Each you had a different monster, and which is probably the reason it's short. The show was short lived because you, how many monsters can you keep coming up each week? And nowadays, I'm sure they would make it where you had a monster lasting a, a longer arc, or possibly um, like a couple monsters a season. Well, how long does Supernatural run for? Right? Yeah. So. Yes, but I just love watching Culture. Oh, it's just, it's just such a great show, and my children love watching it with me. So. I think because of just all those reasons, growing up with it and still having enjoyment with, with my family, it can't beat that. Well, Kolchak is awesome. Uh, Dark Shadows is awesome. Both Dan Curtis productions. And here's a tease. If I haven't actually officially said it on the show, we are planning a theme month for the end of the year. Dan Sember, where we do nothing but Dan Curtis films. I know I talked about it in person at the bash, but let's make it official right now. Dan Curtis, Dan Sember, Monster Kid Radio 2018. All right, final card. Not counting the movie we're talking about today, and I, I added that. That's actually not on the card. But not counting the movie we're talking about today. What was the most recent monster movie you've watched? Gargoyles, the 1973 TV movie. I just watched it the other day. I remember, <laughs> that's kind of interesting because I hadn't seen Gargoyles in over 40 years. I remember um, watching it. My two older brothers are watching it, and I sneak down the basement. I'm watching it from behind the couch. Like they used to say children used to do with the Doctor Who old TV shows. They would sneak peeks, and when the monsters would come out, they'd duck behind. Mm -hmm. So that was my first experience watching Gargoyles. And it's it just certain images are just vividly stuck in my mind. And so here I watched it again the other day, 40-plus years later. And it was, I could still remember those scenes. And I it, it's amazing how much you can remember as a child being scared back then. And the special effects, the, um, the mask makeup was great. I mean, it won the Emmy for that year, for 1973, for makeup or special effects, whatever they actually titled it back then in 1973. The rest of the costume did not hold up as well, like the, the, the bodysuit. And I remember listening to the commentary track with the director, and that was the same the same things I thought were shortcomings of the movie were the same things that he felt were shortcomings of the movie. And he only had 18 days to film it and a small budget. So there's only so much you can do. And some people look back at these movies, they got to remember, they, they sometimes had a very small window period to film them and the budget was minuscule compared to movies nowadays. I mean, he was talking about how he might add CGI for this or that to show more flight with the gargoyles and things like that. But Jennifer Salt was in it. Um, Oliver Wilde. Uh, it, it's just, it's just a very good movie and a very young, I forgot all about this, a very, very young Scott Glenn. 
Wow. Well, I haven't seen it, so it sounds like something I should check out. Oh, you got, oh, Derek, you I, haven't seen it. You know, you know what's going to happen here now that I've said that I haven't seen it. About six months from now, it's going to turn up in my mailbox. And then about two months after that, Steve and I will talk about it here on the show. Because <laughs> that's the pattern we have now, which I love. So that's the classic five. Let's get to the movie we're going to talk about because I love that Steve is so passionate about some of these movies. And it's that's infectious. We talked about House Man. That movie has still stuck with me quite a bit. And now we're talking about March of the Wooden Soldiers, also known as Babes in Toyland. Christmas in July. Wow. Um, wow. Here they come. Call out the guard. Break out the colors. Summon the Marines. Hasten the royal musicians. Thousands upon thousands of musicians. Strike up the band. experience with classic comedy duos does not extend to Laurel and Hardy. It typically begins and ends with Abbott and Costello, unfortunately, because I feel like there's a lot more out there that I should be aware of, especially if I'm a fan of classic cinema. What about you? What's your experience with Laurel and Hardy? Mine actually is also very limited compared to the average person. I just remember watching this. It was a family tradition around Christmas time. We'd always put in March of the Wooden Soldiers, and with my children every year, for the most part, but every time, every so often you do miss a year, but almost almost every year we're watching March of the Wooden Soldiers as a lead up to Christmas, and it's just it's just a very good family oriented entertainment, and it has a little bit of everything in it, and uh, which I think makes it interesting. But the only thing I the only thing I worry about is somebody watching it nowadays because it was from the 1930s. And musical tastes are so different now that it might not be as entertaining as it was back then. I think with all of these films, we have to remember the era in which they were produced and, and kind of adopt that that mindset. Sure, there might be some movies out there that are quote-unquote timeless. And as far as I'm concerned, most of the monster movies are. But this is the 30s, and it's a movie that was inspired by an opera or an operetta. 
So it's going to have a very different musical style when it comes to the musical numbers that you don't get in other musicals of the classic Hollywood era. And I think that's okay, as long as you go into it expecting that. The movie is not overwhelmed with musical numbers. I think there's only a couple of characters who actually sing. So as soon as you see, is it Tom Tom? Yeah, Tom Tom. And Bo Peep. They, they are the ones that sing to each other. And I guess there's that opening number at the beginning as well. Yeah, with Mother Goose. Yeah, with Mother Goose singing. But that's about it. Really, the movie is, is less about the musical numbers and more about this weird kind of surreal world where all these fairy tales and children's stories all coexist, up to and including Mickey Mouse, which I did not know going into this, that Mickey Mouse was going to turn up. And then as you're watching the movie, you also hear the Disney version of the Three, uh, the three Little Pigs song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? That's in here, which is clearly Disney. I did a little bit of research, and the producer, Hal Roach, and Disney were friends, and Roach got the okay from Disney to include that in the film, which I think does kind of add to it a little bit more. Although, interestingly, they never identify him as Mickey Mouse. In fact, when we even see like a sign, maybe outside of his house or maybe a storefront, when it's referring to Mickey Mouse, it's actually the symbol. So I wonder if that was a concession made. But I found that fascinating. Um, Disney wanted to, when they were originally talking about making this, when they bought the rights, they were going to have Walt Disney do an animated version. And then when they found out how much it was going to cost, that's when um, they switched it and Hal Roach did the version we see now. So you can imagine if they would have had more money, this could have been done by Disney. Yeah. It would have been very different. I think it would be very, very different because I think there are some things that happen in this film that wouldn't have turned up in a Disney film, even in the 30s, especially with towards the end when they're talking about getting the villain dead or alive. You know, and I guess if we drop a rock on him, he'll be dead. I can't imagine that would have gone <laughs> uh, with Disney, but, you know. And for people trying to get an idea, this this movie has opera. It does have monsters. It takes place in July, but they're building up toys for Christmas. Santa Claus shows up. Mm-hmm. And it's in a lovely place called Toyland. And it's, it's basically all these different storybook houses and all these different characters that, as a child, we all read Mother Goose or had Mother Goose read to us. And it's just, when you see it, up there for the first time live, it just it, it makes it really great. I mean, you have the old woman who lived in a shoe. You had little Bo Peep, Tom Tom, the baker's son. I mean, all those fun things with it. It's, yeah. um, it's yeah, just there, great. There's the, the baby up in the tree for Rockabye Baby. Uh, you've got the cat and the fiddle. Uh, you've got all these different elements from classic children's stories all coexisting so the continuity fan in me is like oh man here's a cinematic universe you know (laughs) that's awesome so I, i did respond to that laurel and hardy don't dominate the film per se because we do spend some time with the old woman who lives in the shoe and bo peep and tom tom who may or may not be related to the pied piper i think is this last name piper Actually, I screwed up. It's Tom Tom the Piper's son, so it's Tom Tom Piper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We do see the guy who sticks his thumb in the pie and pulls out a plum. I mean, that's at the very beginning. And towards the end, with with a big fight scene, you see a lot of them all kind of interacting with, with the monsters that do turn up. The movie is not in the public domain technically. There were some issues when it got re-released, but since then those issues have been resolved. Because of that, though, a lot of copies did get disseminated online and all over the place where you can see it 
kind of sort of for free, kind of looking at the gray market side of things. The version that I watched was in color, which is definitely not in the public domain because the people who did the colorization own the copyright to that. I think it was Legend Films. The movie was originally black and white, but if I remember right, I think I read that, was it Laurel who publicly lamented that it should have been in color because the sets were so beautiful? Yes, Stan Laurel. He saw all these beautiful color sets and it was just it was just sad that it wasn't done in color. And that's, they said it was an interesting question when you asked me about colorized films. I, you and I had this discussion before in last year's Monster Bash about films, you know, black and white in color. And I said, there's one film that was filmed in black and white that I always felt should have been colorized and, of course, has been, and that is this film. It's just because toy land, it, 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 it should be in color. It should be bright, vibrant. It, it's a fantasy land. And I think the color, this is one of the few times where I think the colorized version is better in the black and white. And I rewatched both for this podcast. I, I prefer the colorized version. So it, it's, I know earlier I say how I, I hate having things colorized. There's always an exception. There's always that one film. And this has always been that one film in my mind. But if I would have done it, my way, I would have had the Toyland scenes all in color and the Bogeyland scenes in black and white. Okay. And when the Bogeymen take over or attack Toyland, it starts to turn black and white at the areas they're taking over. Oh. And then when the soldiers march out, it starts to become color again. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that, you know, kind of pull like a, a, a Wizard of Oz kind of thing, a reverse Wizard of Oz. Uh, and we are seeing black and white, but I think technically it was released in sepia tone, which is still a monochromatic version of, of film, just for, to be clear about it. As far as whether or not I prefer this in color or black and white, I think in this case it does look pretty striking in color. And it's an odd color. It's not quite... Like, when you think of color films today, obviously they have a certain look, a certain tint, a certain hue. The colorization of this, because everything is so brightly lit, everything's just got this weird edge, which adds this surreality to the whole thing, to the proceedings. And it's odd. It roped me in. I did enjoy the film. Uh, one thing that Steve asked me right before we started recording, he was curious about, one thing that Steve said before we started recording is that he was curious about what I thought of the movie. And and I want to say I did enjoy the movie. But it is an odd one. <laughs> it is really odd. But in a good way, in a delightful way. I, I didn't even fast forward through the, the musical numbers. That's fine. It's an odd film. You have a comedy. You have a musical. And then you have the monsters, the bogeymen. And that seems like an action adventure. Yeah. All put together, mixed in a stew, and boom. You, you get March of the Wind Soldiers, Babes in Toyland. I've always enjoyed the Laurel and Hardy parts because they play um, um, Stanley Dumb and Oliver D. So they play Tweedledee, Tweedledum. Yeah. And their, their interactions with each other and just the looks they give, you're going back to their silent movie days. It's just, it's just fun. It's just so enjoyable. Them being trying to help the lady, the old woman who lived in a shoe, you know, to try to help her out so she doesn't lose her um, shoe, her house. Mm -hmm. To the villain who, I mean, I got to give this guy credit. The guy who played the villain, Silas Barnaby, Silas Barnaby, who was taken after the, the man who lived in the crooked house. Yeah. Henry Brandon. I know he had a different name listed for that one, but most of the time he went by Henry Brandon. He was only 22 years old 
and he's playing this guy who's supposed to be, I guess, in his 50s, you know, from what I'm guessing. And he does it really well. And he reminds me of an actor I've seen recently, Joshua Kennedy. <laughs> Imagine Joshua Kennedy playing Silas and picture it. Can you not picture him doing it? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I can see that for sure. <laughs> and, and that's what I was thinking. I was just like, when you look at this man's filmography, I mean, if you were trying to do your, when you were doing your um, creature connections, this would be your due to connect to a wide variety of movies. I mean, mm-hmm. he had a tremendous filmography. He was in everything, it seemed like. Uh, what is it? From the Ten Commandments, War of the Worlds. Assault on Precinct 13, man, which is one of my favorite John Carpenter films. I know it's not a classic, but he was in that. Exactly. All over the place. Yes, and he played played a whole bunch of different um, non-European type roles. I mean, it was just amazing the different ways he was able to bring his different acting chops. Mm -hmm. But I just, I've always loved him as the villain in this movie. I always said this to you before, without a great villain, it's hard to have a good movie where we were talking about monster movies or whatever kind of movie. And he is a great villain. He played Fu Manchu. I mean, he played Fu Manchu. Can you see, I can see him totally playing Fu Manchu. That's awesome. I totally see it. They probably yellow faced him, but still, you know, he played Fu Manchu. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's good stuff. The guy's solid. There's a lot of physical acting here. And I think, when you look at especially the classic era of comedy duos, Oral and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, all there, there's a lot of physical comedy involved. And he really brings the level of his physical acting and interacting to the same level of Laurel and Hardy in this, you know, the way he moves, the way he acts. I mean, he was a stage guy. I think he was discovered on stage and I mean, he's solid. He's a he's a great villain. He plays, like you said, he, he's based on the, the Crooked House guy, but I think they call him the mean old man or something like that in the film. In the film, they call him Silas. Silas, so but I think at one point they, they do give him money. Well, either way, he's a great villain. Of course, he has a henchman, you know, which which I can relate to. I feel like I'm your henchman. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I don't know. I just I can't really say enough about him. His, his walk, his look everything he brings about him, the physicality as, as, as that villain, it's just, it just sells it to me so much. He's definitely a solid performer in the film. This is my first exposure long form to Laurel and Hardy as comedians. So I, I wonder if I go back and I watch you know, maybe some older material with them, would I notice that Hardy spends a lot of time mugging to the camera. Does he actually break the third wall quite a bit like that? Or is that a holdover from maybe like vaudeville and live performances? You know, I guess Abbott and Costello did that too, didn't they? I guess Abbott would look at the camera quite a bit. Because it goes back to their stage performance days and then they bring it and then they bring it in. Of course, Laurel and Hardy are known also for their silent movies. Yeah. I know the timing, the whole looks between the two of them, it just makes it more enjoyable. You believe, even though they don't look like each other, whether they were stepbrothers or whatever, you just know they have that past history by the way their interaction is, the charisma, the chemistry between the two of them. I mean, that's that's why they were legends. 
very prolific, uh, working since the silent era, like you said, as early as 19, I think 15 or 17, uh, real, real early. Man, uh, they really do carry a big chunk of the movie when they're on screen. When they're not on screen, there's a lot of other pretty things to look at. Or some hideous things that really bothered me. The three pigs. What? The, the, the nightmarish. And I know they're not supposed to be. I know they're supposed to look like uh, anthropomorphized pigs. But the three little pigs, they are creepy, man. <laughs> Well, Mickey Mouse looked creepy too, you know. Mickey in, in Mouse, <laughs> uh, you know, and when you first see Mickey Mouse turn up, I couldn't tell. Was it a child? Was it a little person? No, it's a monkey they put in a Mickey Mouse outfit. But still, the way it's moving just doesn't seem right. And the three little pigs, man, their faces, those head masks, very well done, but creepy. Like they, they jumped over that uncanny valley and came back with, you know, reinforcements. They're creepy. <laughs> so it adds to the joy of it because the, the three little pigs actually have a big role in the movie. <laughs> they, they really do. So you get to spend a lot of time with them. Uh. <laughs> what a bizarre thing to throw into the movie. Man. I can imagine the screenwriter just having a lot of fun putting this together because you had so much material to pull from. And, of course, the, the costume people probably just loved it. And we can go crazy. I mean, you even have old King Cole as the king of Toyland. Again, it's the big shared cinematic universe of, <laughs> of, of children's stories. I love it. I, I totally respond to that. And, and it makes me very, very happy to have that happen. Um, it speaks to the continuity, like I said, the continuity nerd in me, the comic book fan of me, the, the MCU, the, the Universal Monster Cycle fan in me. I love that. That we have these. And, and really, these are all public domain, for the most part, figures that people could do anything they wanted to with, really, at this point. So why haven't they done something this enjoyable? Uh, maybe they have, and I'm just not aware of it. I mean, I know there was Fables, the comic book. But these are characters that are ripe for the picking, man. Oh, exactly. This, this is probably one of the few films that, if you were to ask me what, what I want to see remade, I might not have a problem with it being remade with, with um, a different musical sense, because it... Again, a lot of younger kids nowadays might not be drawn to it as much because of the, the musical score, but I would like to see it re-updated and you know dusted off and, and then see what the, what the current makeup and everything else, what you could do. But on the other hand, I don't want them to play down to children too much. I think right. a lot of the current movies that are, that are aimed at children are played too dumb, where the Looney Tunes, I remember watching growing up, of course, there were things for adults when they were going to the movies, and I think that's why they hold up so well is because the comedy is there for all ages. Right. And I think that's what you have to do is with children's movies, it should still be set up as all ages fun because then they'll have that legs and that length, and they'll, and they'll be able to also draw a better audience. If you look, you could probably find some things in this film that are a little more dark than your traditional children's film of the era. And one of those things, again, goes back to the pigs, but I guess, you know, I was just about to say this out loud, but they actually do this in the Walt Disney short cartoon as well, that when you see the family photos of the three little pigs, it's, you know, sausages, you know, <laughs> which, which is dark, but not as dark as later on when, for all we know, or for all the characters know, the sausage that old Laurel starts eating is one of the pigs, <laughs> <laughs> what is going no 
<laughs> well, it doesn't taste like pig. It's, it tastes like pork. But no, that's not. <laughs> For all you know, that was your buddy. That was your neighbor. <laughs> but, but we get to love it. He, he says, he goes, you know, he hands it to Hardy. Laurel hands it to Hardy and says, will you try some? Well, that's not pig nor pork. It's beef. <laughs> and they break the case wide open. <laughs> right. <laughs> As they eat the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got to talk about the monsters. So I already talked about how monstrous the little pigs are. And the Mickey Mouse is kind of creepy. And even the cat's kind of weird. And maybe it's just because they just cue way too close to human shape or, or form. But man, they're just creepy. But... The movie does have, so I thought I heard them refer to them twice, uh, or two different ways, boogeymen and bogeymen. Did I hear that right, or is it? am I mishearing? They're supposed to be bogeymen, but I think, what do you call it, boogeymen or bogeymen? It doesn't really matter mm-hmm. uh, to me, but, but they're in bogey lands, so I don't think they're bogeymen. And there's a lot of them. It's not like there's just a couple. They actually, i got to give them credit when they do the cave scenes, and the invasion of Toyland scene, there is a lot of extras put in those costumes. I, I didn't count them, but it looked like at least at one time there had to be 30 or 40 of them on screen. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. This movie does have a lot of extras. I mean, we'll get back to the bogeyman here in a second, but because this is a Hal Roach production, a lot of the, the smaller characters and stature, that is, whether they're children or maybe some of the, the people hanging out in the cave or whatever, or some of the R gang, some of the little rascals actually were brought into service for this because, again, it was a Hal Roach connection. All right, but yeah, going back to the bogeyman, there are a lot of them hanging out in this cave and they look interesting. I think if you really look at them, you can see that maybe they were modeled after a traditional quote unquote native with like the grass skirts and like the, the big nose and everything. I, I don't know if there was an attempt there or just that was part of the subconscious influence on racist America at the time. I don't know, but they do have a little bit of that to it. That said, it's not like they make a big deal out of it. It's just kind of how the monsters look. Their faces are fantastic. They've got the big fangs. I love that. And I love how they look in mass. You get a bunch of them going in there. Man, it's creepy. Yes, it is. I loved it when, the cave scenes, when you're first introduced to them, when they first start dropping out from the different areas, Little Bo Peep and, of course, Tom Tom are running around trying to get away from them. We kind of never said how this all happens, but Tom Tom and Little Bo Peep are going to get married. And Silas does not want that marriage to happen. So in order for him not to foreclose on the shoe, for the old woman who lives in the shoe, who happens to be the mother of Little Bo Peep, it's get convoluted now. I felt like I'm in a soap opera, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but he says if he basically tells Little Bo Peep that if you marry me, I won't foreclose on the shoe. She ends up agreeing because Stanley Dumb and Ollie D both try to um, get the deed to the, the shoe, but get caught, and they're basically put in this dunking tank, or one of them is. So Ollie looks like he's going to, you know, they're, like they're going to get punished. He might drown, so she accepts. He takes away their charges, gives and says he'll give the deed to the little old lady once the wedding happens. And one of the favorite turn of events happens. The um, <laughs> where, where you just gotta love it. Where um, Stan Laurel is dressed in as, as the bride, and Oliver and Ollie takes him over, and he, they get married. 
and before he, before he lifts up the veil so he can kiss the bride, he gets the deed, rips it up, and then um, he finds out he married Stan Laurel. <laughs> And, and then they were frames. they were selling that too because even when they go by Tom Tom, the veil is over Sam Laurel's face, so you can't tell that it's not Bo Peep. You just assume, and they haven't told the audience that this was the plan yet, so it's it's a big reveal for us as well. When he walks by Tom Tom, he looks so distraught and and even kind of I think he even reaches out to her, doesn't he? That or to him because he even he thinks it's Bo Peep. Oh, and when they sell it in the movie because they have when when he says I do, it's little Bo Peep's voice. Yeah. Instead of Stan trying to do a girl's voice, it, it, they, they had her voice in. Whenever the Silas, it doesn't take it too well and sets up Tom Tom and the frame job was killing one of the three little pigs. Kind of dark. Kind of dark. And, and if you kill somebody, you go automatically to Bogeyland. So he gets sent to Bogeyland just at the same time as we already talked about how Stan and, and Ollie solved the case by finding out that the Salch's links were beef, not pork. And little Bo Peep goes and takes the raft to go rescue Tom Tom. At the same time, the whole town's trying to get Silas, who goes down a well, which has a secret tunnel that takes him also to Bogey Land. And that's where they're dropping the rock, which you said about, like, oh, it says dead or alive. And they drop the rock down to make sure he's dead. Well, can't you make up your mind? Don't you want him dead or don't you want him alive? How could he be oh, dead love- and alive at the same time? Laurel, you are such a simple man. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. It was just, oh, I mean, there's other scenes in it you're just going to love. Like when the dunking thing where um, poor Oliver goes and gets dunked, he says, Ollie, give me your watch. Well, that's smart thinking, Stan. But Ollie forgets about that and pays the price later on for what he does to Stan. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's a good film. I mean, I enjoyed it. I don't know if it's something I'm going to watch every July. I might put it on on Christmas time. We'll see. Is it technically a Christmas film? Well, you know, I'm, I don't, I can see how the mythology of this film could get wrapped up into Christmas. However, the film by itself is as much a Christmas movie as the line, the witch in the wardrobe is Santa Claus shows up. That's about it. And I don't know if it's something that you have to wait until Christmas to watch and enjoy. Like I said, the movie takes place in July, so it could be at any time. Santa Claus does show up. He's kind of a creep. He's kind of creepy looking, and the guy who runs the toy shop that Tweedledee and Tweedledum that Laurel and Hardy work at is kind of a jerk. But, you know, that's how you get the, the wooden soldiers, which, by the way, are stop motion a lot of the times, which is another element that makes it relevant to Monster Kid Radio. I don't care how many times I've seen it, and I've seen this movie, oh, at least 30, 40 times, somewhere in that range. I always love it when the soldiers are activated and they come out to take care of the bogeymen. It's just wonderful with the stop motion, like you said. They line up in March and they go by Stan and Laurel. And then they switch to live live actors again. They had a huge cast of extras, you know, to have all these soldiers and bogeymen yep. fighting each other. Yep. But before they come out, you got to love the Mickey Mouse character and the blimp fighting them. Uh, <laughs> that was so random. Like, well, what is happening here? He's dropping, I don't know, explosives of some sort. Yeah, it's like those like those snappers that we used to get. You know, where like they're wrapped in paper, used to throw them on the ground. They go snap. Except they were like more like atomic sized versions of those. <laughs> While Stan and Laurel are throwing darts at everything, which gets a little violent and aggressive. And I mean, it's played for laughs, but 
there are stakes here, I think, maybe. Uh, the Wooden Soldiers were told earlier in the film that Laurel and Hardy were supposed to create or build 600 one-foot wooden soldiers, and they mixed it up and did 106-foot wooden soldiers. So I've not counted them. But in this story, there's 100 of these wooden soldiers going around cleaning up, and it's great. Bogeymen are trying to snatch kids out of their beds or climbing up the tree to get the rock by baby baby, who's an actual live baby, you know, in a cradle up there. Uh, and, and the wooden soldiers are taking care of business and it's great. You just get all roused up with the music and everything happens. And I don't know. I just enjoy it. But one thing I, I think I'm going to mention again is this, the scenery. Yeah. When the bogeymen first arrive and people are running to their houses, how some of these houses open up, like some of them open up like doll houses. It, there, there's so many different variations of buildings that the set designer had to have loved this job. If you're doing Toyland and go for it. It just makes you a child again every time you watch it. Yeah. And, and to see the soldiers going through and saving Toyland is like saving your childhood. That's a really good point. That's something I hadn't really considered, but you're absolutely right. The boogeymen are trying to take out your childhood stories and, and what made you a kid, what shaped you. And the wooden soldiers come and save the day. Now, have you seen any other versions of this story? I know, didn't Scott Bayo do one once? I mean, Babes in Toyland seems like it's been done over and over and over again, hasn't it? I have seen other versions, but this is the one I always go back to. Like I said, I think mainly because of Laurel and Hardy, you just have all those fun scenes with them, and the end sequence fight, the big battle for the Toyland. Mm-hmm. Those two parts, and of course Silas being such a great villain. For those wondering... Silas is the leader of the bogeyman. When he goes over there, he rallies them up and he makes he has them come out and charge. He is the the leader of the of the monsters. Right. Good stuff. I'm glad I watched it. I actually watched half of it last night and then finished it up this morning over breakfast. And uh, I, I I dug it, man. It's the only Laurel and Hardy film I have in my movie collection. Uh, I may go back and try to watch some more. Uh, you know, like I said, I I'm not overly familiar with their filmography, but I feel like I probably need to learn something. And, and I'm still learning myself. There's so many different movies over the last hundred plus years that have come out that there's no way in the world you could see them all and know everything about everything. But it's just the journey of trying to find uh, all these different things. The journey taking that is what makes it so much fun mm-hmm. and so enjoyable. Yeah. And then you there with other people and it's just like oh yeah try this one and and i guess i was a little worried because there's some of those opera songs there's four of them and, i mean because i know the songs are coming and i know which ones there are there's there's always one of them that i'm just like a little bored with and that's usually when i would get up and, and go get a snack <laughs> come back <laughs> but i'm watching with the kids i'm like oh daddy's gonna go get you guys some stuff or whatever it's not a perfect movie but it's just a very entertaining movie and a very enjoyable movie yeah it has a lot of good parts to it no, it, it is fun, definitely. There, there's a lot of fun in here, a lot of fun to be had. Some of the uh, musical bits, which I think are pretty much the only real holdovers from the actual stage production. If I remember right, a lot of the story itself was all created for the film. It doesn't really have much to do with the stage production, but I'm not overly familiar with Babes in Toyland, so I don't know. Uh, Babes in Toyland was a 1903 operetta and apparently very, very popular. But, again, I don't know much about it. Uh, Babes in Toyland was the original title of the film. It got re-released a couple of times over the years. March of the Wooden Soldiers is what it was called, I believe, when it went to television? I, I guess because it's always been it's March of the Wooden Soldiers. 
the um, Blu-ray I have of it has March of the Wooden Soldiers, but yet when you put the disc in and you're watching it, it says Babes and Toy Men. So it has the original title cards. Right. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things, when you, if you're wondering if you're watching a public domain or the full version, is if it has the opening song, Toyland. If it has Mother Goose coming out and singing, and it's the 77-minute version or whatever, 77, 78, depending on which one you read, um, then you're watching the full version. Yeah. If if it's missing that opening song and a couple other songs are, are cut out also later on, then you're watching the um, condensed version. Yeah. Uh, there are a few other things I want to comment on real quick just to give it some more uh, monster connections. Uh, one of the pigs is played by Angelo Rosito, who is a very well-known uh, actor from some of the Poverty Row films. He did appear in Freaks, not that that was a Poverty Row film, but he did also appear, I believe, in Scared to Death with Bela Lugosi. So he's in that film. Also, the Dunkers, the people who are passing judgment. They look like executioners. They have black hoods. That's scary, man. I'd say <laughs> there's, there's certainly, like we said with the pigs, like we said with the Mickey Mouse character and, and the cat. There's some things here that when you look at it from our viewpoint, they were kind of scary. But I guess back then in the 30s, this this probably didn't look as scary. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Although if you go back and look at Halloween costumes that kids wore back in the day or even go look at opening photos from Disneyland to see the characters walking around, those Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse costumes look terrifying today. So it's got that kind of aesthetic to it. Creepy, those pigs, man. And I see, I've seen, you know, on Facebook, you can send gifts to people in your messages and things like that. I've seen a close-up of one of those pig faces as an animated GIF, and I've always wondered, what is that from? Because that is creepy as all get out. Well, this movie has answered that question for me. <laughs> I'm just trying to do you a service, Derek. I, somehow I just knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, learning stuff here on Monster Kid Radio. That's right. <laughs> Monstercation and monstertainment. That's what we do here. Basically, you're an educational show. You should be on PBS. You know, I should be able to be tax exempt and all that, right? You know, if I'm an educational thing, I do like a not for profit, you know. <laughs> that implies I'm making a lot of money on this. But, you know, I could. <laughs> I thought you already were not for profit. Well, that, this is true. <laughs> So the movie's out there. You can get your hands on it pretty easily. It's available for streaming on Amazon. There are Blu-rays of it out there. You can get your hands on it. Watch it. Enjoy it. It's fun. It's innocent, despite some of the darker elements. The musical numbers, especially the one in the cave, go to sleep, go to sleep. They're freaking out. They're in the bogeyman's... Bogeyman. They're in the bogeyman's hideout. <laughs> well, well, I don't know where that came from. Although now I want to see like a, I want to see like a monster that Ultraman fights based on the bogeyman and call it the bogeyman. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I thought you were going Jamaican, you know, you know like, like Jaws. Was it was it Jaws three or Jaws four? Jaws four to revenge. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, March of the Wooden Soldiers four. The island. <laughs> <laughs> so they're hiding in the cave and they're freaking out because they know the bogeymen are there. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. Let's go to sleep. What are you doing? <laughs> but okay. Got to have a musical number. That's fine. <laughs> well, they were lost. And um, and I guess you got to keep your strength. I don't know why they fall. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Unless it was to put in that other musical bit, which... I don't know if they released any of these songs commercially. I, I don't know. Either way, I dug it. 
I dug the film. I'm glad I watched it. I'm really glad we wa- I watched it. And I'm glad that we talked about it here Christmas in July on Monster Kid Radio. I'm really interested to see if, they, if a remake is done with, by Joshua Kennedy and he plays Silas. I'm, I'm, the more I think about it, I, I would be very intrigued to see what his creative mind would do with something like this. <laughs> See, we're friends with Josh Kennedy, so I, and, and we've spent more time with him than just watching him in the movies. I could see just his mannerisms and the way he moves and the way he speaks. He could totally pull off that character. Totally. No doubt. With his creative mind, it would just be, it would just be very interesting to see take on Toyland and, and the bogeyman and the other stuff. It would just, I would um, definitely want to see it. There we go. <laughs> Well, Steve, this has been fun to talk about. It was fun to have you back on the show again, of course. I need to go ahead and wrap this up because it is in the high 90s here in Portland, and I need to turn the air conditioner back on. Talking about a Christmas-like movie can only keep me cool for so long. (laughs) (laughs) Out of the darkness of the ancient past, Out of the dust of centuries and the inscrutable silence of the unknown come two new adventures in shock and suspense on one sensational motion picture program. The The Mummy. Mummy. Plus Curse of the Undead. Fear will freeze you when you face The Mummy. It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. It walks through bullets like a ghost. Wakened from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it stalks the earth with strangely human desires. The Mummy. And on the same program, Curse of the Undead. The haunting story of a faceless fiend who drained the young and beautiful of life. Together on one program, Curse of the Undead, and in chilling technicolor, The Mummy. Nothing can stop it. The Blob. Starring Steve McQueen. It creeps. It crawls. It's slithery. It's slimy. The Blob. Plus Dinosaurus. Both in shrieking color. Foreboding place of no return. Hercules in the haunted world. An unearthly world of eternal darkness. Ghostly kingdom of the undead demons of death. From these horrifying, hideous creatures of evil, Hercules and his friend must save their doomed kingdom and the women they love. Hercules wants something. He always wants something. But when I return, I'll never leave you again. This I promise you. Hercules and Theseus battle treacherous, monstrous forces of evil in the forbidden depths of a haunted underworld. I will serve you as your slave as long as you live. Save me. I beg you. Stop. It's a trap. Don't trust the shadows of Hades. (laughs) Nefarious fiendish Lyco, mastermind of terror, must be destroyed. Reg Park as the heroic Hercules in the haunted world. Vault of Monster Collectibles number 9, Michael Dodd. Pop Top Horrors, MPC 1964.
The MPC Pop-Top Horrors are eight different 5-inch monster figures with removable heads. The gimmick was that a kid could exchange their heads and make several different monsters. They were most commonly sold in two-packs, but there was also a less common blister-carded eight-pack which contained the whole set. The two-packs were 29 cents each, and the eight-pack could be purchased for the considerable sum of 98 cents. There are two noteworthy things about these toys. The first is the sculpts, which resulted in some of the creepiest, freakiest, and most twisted monster figures in history. The second thing is the packaging. I don't think any monster toy ever had cooler packaging than MPC produced in the 60s. Those images were a bit Charles Adams and were very much evocative of a delicious, creepy, cool aesthetic. When a kid saw those mystic images, he was compelled to have a fit until the parents caved in to the purchase. Let's take a look at each one. Which, This classic hag is bent and decrepit in a mean-spirited way. She clutches her gnarled hands close to her cronish body and wields a spoon fresh from stirring the tainted brew. Her bent pointy hat rounds out her ensemble and her bat familiar purchases on her upper left arm. Executioner. This dude is all bad, sporting medieval duds and a sinister masked hood. He brandishes a very large knife in his left hand and the skull of a victim in his right. The Monster Frankenstein's monster done MPC style. Very gaunt and disheveled with high shoulders and a humped back. Lurch meets the tall man from the phantasm flicks. Wolfman Gaunt to the point of near emaciation, this dog was born to hunt. His large werewolf ears are poised to hear his prey, long lycanthrope legs ready to close in on it, and ripping fangs and claws ready to seal the deal. Creature of Doom, the personification of death, commonly called the Grim Reaper. The skeletal body and unholy robes form a visage from hell that the soul scythe puts the exclamation point to. Mummy. Classic Egyptian undead wrapped in bandages and evil. This mummy looks to quickly close on its victims. Shambling be damned. The asp wrapped around its left leg signifies the venomous situation that has befallen its hapless target. Skeleton. Animated undead have long been a horror staple, and what more fitting than a humanoid pile of bones come to sound one's epitaph. It holds a bat in its left hand to strike more terror into its pitiful victims, and perhaps to help it sense its surroundings. Vampire. Looking very much like Lon Chaney's Phantom, this caped Lord of the Undead is thirsty for some company. His left arm outstretched in ominous pose. Yes, he's coming for you. Let's take a look at what you might be expected to pay for pop-top horrors. Loose ones show up on Evil Bay <laughs> quite frequently and generally sell in the $50 to $75 range for excellent condition examples and much less for broken or otherwise damaged ones. Just the heads fetch around $15 to $25 each depending on condition and the bodies may be a bit more. 
The packaged pop-top have seen big price increases in the last few years, with two-packs selling in the $300 to $800 range, depending on condition. One two-pack even sold for over $1,800 not long ago, but that anomaly can most likely be attributed to spirited bidding and deep pockets. The eight-pack is very scarce and could be legitimately rare. It can command prices from two to $5,000 depending on condition. Now let's talk about condition. Usually if a toy is sealed, only the condition of the packaging is an issue. But not so with pop tops. Some pop tops have become brittle over the years and tend to break very easily, whether loose or packaged. And conversely, other pop tops show no brittleness at all and seem to be as unbreakable now as they were 54 years ago. I suspect this has to do with different plastic mixes used to make them. I have seen many photos of brittle ones and heard more than a few accounts of them easily breaking, but the ones I've had from childhood and the packaged examples I bought in 2001 show no signs of breaking. Just pop top lucky, I guess. NPC also made two and a half inch versions of the pop top horrors called unbreakable weird monsters that are very common in the marketplace. They don't have the removable heads, being one solid piece, and are more common than their big brothers. They were popular in boxes of individually bagged Frito corn chips in the late 60s, sporting silly names like Slewfoot. They do, however, have the same great sculpts as the larger pop tops, albeit scaled down. I had many a pop top as a kid and sold off my many duplicates through the years, just keeping one set of loose ones. When I attended Monster Bash in 2001, the first thing I bought was a complete set of all four of the sealed two-packs for $150. I still have them on display in my MPC shelf with my loose set displayed in front of them. No brittleness here, knock on wood. The MPC monster sculpts have fired my imagination and haunted my dreams all my life, so much so that I put together a custom Marx-style playset a few years ago just to get some of that out of my system. I drew the box in Monster Kid style and gathered the pieces, custom making some, and this descent into Monster Kid evil starred the MPC monsters. I had to use the two and a half inch versions due to proper scale. These malevolent fiends I named the Unholy Eight. Here's a little background. Cue evil laugh. <laughs> the leader is Hagmar, the witch, born Hagmarian Thorn, and reborn a powerful undead sorceress when she was hanged in 1692 at Demon's Overlook. Her pact with her dark god masters came to fruition when those mortal fools took her life in the name of their god. Her god, Agrizel, infused her with power over the next centuries, and the time for her return is nigh. By the way, that's her on the sale of the Haunted Hulk. Her group of Hell's children include Creature of Doom, almost a power unto itself. It's near unstoppable and can raise armies of the undead. It exists to assist the witch, but also to make sure she honors her pact with her dark godmasters. 
the Wolfman, a 13th century Spanish nobleman named Armando José Alvarez, battle-worthy lycanthrope who is hard to control and has the uncanny knack to seduce comely females who usually fall in love with him and cause him to rebel against the unholy eight to save the female victims. Shades of Waldemar Daninsky. The monster is a body made of corpse parts and given life through alchemy and demon possession by Hagmar. The mummy is an undead possessed by snake demon Sicaras. Its negative energy aura turns the living into the undead. The vampire is Count Valagast, a potent vampire lord of eight centuries. He and Hagmar are rivals, but for now he will serve until the time is ripe for a takeover. The cursed skeleton and devil bat are demons which work in tandem. The executioner is an insanely sadistic revenant whose main power is the ability to strike fear into his victims. Makes the Marquis de Sade look like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> also serving Hagmar, we have a group of undead knights called the Fist of Satan. They ride their undead steeds into battle, very much in keeping with Armando de Osorio's blind dead Templar knights. The heroes are woefully outpowered, but quite effective in their own right. They number only five, but are super soldiers armed with advanced weaponry, silver-tipped hollow-point rounds filled with holy water, particle accelerators, and blessed silver spike-firing hand cannons. They are known as the Paladin Force. Accompanying them are three squads of army rangers, led to a spectacular slaughter. The action takes place at a seaside hilltop cemetery on the edge of a cliff once called Demon's Overlook. It's now known as Hillcrest Cemetery. There's a vast underground monster's lair complete with magical laboratory, torture chamber, and summoning chamber, which leads out to a seaside grotto where the haunted hulk is anchored. Also included are wolves, giant rats, a living tree, a zombie horde, and three victims who are descendants of the ones who hanged Hagmarian those centuries ago. I always envisioned a 16-page accompanying comic book drawn by Neil Adams or Bernie Wrightson, which explains all of this backstory. Also, there's the fictitious origin of the playset, which is an unlikely collaboration between Marx and MPC, but that's another story. Whew, so you can see the effect the NPC monsters had on this monster kid. Compelling sculpts indeed. Picks are that of the spectacular Pop Top Horrors 8-pack, a pick of all four of the two packs, and a third pick of my NPC monster shelf, which contains my two packs, my loose Pop Tops, my Haunted Hulk, a set of red weird monsters only available in the NPC Monster Checkers set, a set of glow-in-the-dark weird monsters sold in the 80s, my Hennel Monster Head Rings made in the likeness of the pop-top heads along with the vending machine display card, a witch cake topper in the likeness of the pop-top witch, a set of NPC Daffy Daddy O's, NPC Daffy Daddy O's, a couple more weird monsters found in the Frito packs, and the three NPC-ish one and a half inch mini monsters sold in the spooky surprise grab bags from LM Becker and Company. Next week, 
we will take a pick at the Creature from the Black Lagoon mask reissue from Dawn Post Studios. CFTBL, baby. Ooh, Derek's going to love that one. Things in a strong rock. Mm. There's plenty of Cuban sugar, though. Here's what happened. The general beat his friend Castro to the Cuban treasury. The strong box is now on this boat. So are a deported American gangster and his mall. And lurking in the depths is the creature from the haunted sea. You're a crazy mixed-up kid. I am perfectly adjusted to my life of crime. Don't worry, Mary Bell. I'll save you. It's all right. Be calm, everybody. The boat's insured. Archivos, the new story development application from WonderThink Studios, will change the way you look at stories. Archivos takes a different approach to documenting your story setting. While most wikis and storytelling frameworks focus on documenting the elements of your stories, Archivos is more interested in the connections between those story elements. It's the relationships between characters and places and events that express the true structure and allure of your stories. As a storyteller, that's the awareness you need to strengthen and refine the crafting of your stories. Archivos really is the story development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. Baby, dance, come and dance with me. Hear the beat of the mountain sea. Ride, baby, ride, come and ride with me. Let your feet go easy. What do you make of this? Where does the other end go? It dumps into the ocean. It looks exactly like the South American Fantigua fish. I hope you can take one alive, Sheriff. I still believe that a human clawed that girl to death. The Beach Girls and the Monster. Starring John Hall, Sue Casey, and the glamorous Watusi dancing girls from Hollywood's famed Whiskey-A-Go-Go nightclub. Music by Frank Sinatra, Jr. You got a monster in the turf. Jinks, do you have a problem? You won't have after you meet the monster on the beach. 
you see this ghoul, play it cool. Beauties in bikinis, laughing, singing, surfing, sinning. Beach party lovers making hey hey in the moonlight while the monster waits and watches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one will kill you. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening and being part of the show this week. It means a lot to me to have you guys and gals out there listening in, playing along at home, maybe with your own copy of the Classic 5 game. Drop me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com if you want to talk about getting a copy of this for yourself. We have a 75-card deck. The core deck is $15. The expansion decks, the Hammer, the Universal, and the Monster Bash deck are all $5 a piece, $3 shipping here in the U.S. So if you're interested in playing along at home or getting your own deck that's how you do it you can also send us feedback at that same email address or you can leave us a voicemail like jeff does when he calls in the weird wednesday report the voicemail line is 503-479-5657 that's 503-479-5mkr you might have just heard wednesday in the background don't know if she'll actually pick up on the microphone but i think she's complaining because i've turned off the air conditioning so let me see what else i can do here so i can wrap this up turn on the ac and cool this place off you don't want to hear the air conditioning in the background of this over at monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. Everything's there, including a link to the ballot for the rallies. Now, the Rally Awards is what we do here on the show every year to celebrate the best in genre cinema. And originally, I had the cutoff date like, well, about a week ago. I have extended the ballot. So head over to tinyurl.com slash rallies2018 so you can cast your vote for your favorite actor, actress, monster, director, and monster movie from the years 1934, 44, and 54. 54, man, it's a doozy. In fact, I've gotten some feedback about that. I don't have a feedback section this week because it is so hot. This weather is just doing a number on my wife Brenda's rheumatoid arthritis. The only reason we have a vault of monster collectibles is because it's something she recorded several weeks back for us. So we don't have her on this week's show. However, between this week and next week, at some point, if it cools off enough, I'm going to have her sit down with me. If it cools off enough, I'm going to ask her to sit down with me and we'll knock out a feedback segment because I've got some awesome emails and even a message from Facebook that I want to share with you guys and gals. So I've got your messages. Don't think I'm not getting them. It's just I can't address them right now because my co-host and partner and wife just isn't able to participate this week. Coming up next week on the show, we are beginning another themed month with Edgar August Poe Month. We've got at least four weeks of nothing but Edgar Allan Poe content. Now, when I first decided to do this, I thought, you know, that means we're just going to knock out all the Price Poe films. But really, so far, it looks like we're only doing one of the Vincent Price, Roger Corman Poe adaptations. And that's going to be Tales of Terror. We're going to be covering that with Dr. Gang Green, Larry Underwood. That's happening in week two of Edgar August Poe. Week one, which is the next week, Another doctor, Dr. Drek, Michael Leggi will be coming by and we'll be talking about a movie starring Dwight Fry and Eric Von Stroheim. It's called The Crime of Dr. Crespi. It's really, really cool. I haven't recorded it yet, but this weekend I've got a schedule recording with Rod Barnett from the Nasha cast. He and I are going to be talking about a movie called Castle of Blood starring Barbara Steele. And there's a character in there that is, well, 
Edgar Allan Poe. He's in the story. And then the fourth week, we've got Jonathan Inbody coming back. We're going to be talking about the Lugosi classic murders in the Rue Morgue. I know there are five weeks in the month of August, and I do have a guy that I've been trying to line up a time with to get onto the show, somebody that I've wanted to have on the show in quite some time. So that's what's coming up, not just next week, but over the next month. I'm excited. I'm stoked. And I'm really excited about what's coming up in September because I've started getting some shows in the virtual can for that as well. Things like, well, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out what those are going to be. I'll mention them over at monsterkidradio.net as well as a Facebook page. You can look us up on Facebook. We have a Facebook page which you can like and a Facebook group that you can join. That's where the conversations are happening with people while they're listening to Monster Kid Radio or even while they listen. We do have a Twitter page, twitter.com slash monsterkidradio and... I'm going to ask you to stay tuned because there's a few other things in the works. Listeners, you might know I lost my job at the beginning of this month. I got back from Monster Bash, flying high, got called in for a meeting when I got back to my day job and got separated from the company. So lots of highs, lots of lows, and things are kind of evening out now. I'm kind of getting back on the upswing. I've got some things in the works that I want to do with Monster Kid Radio as well as Monster Kid Radio related So I'm going to be putting a renewed focus on getting more YouTube videos out there. Monster Kid Radio does have a YouTube channel. Just look us up over there. It's under Monster Kid Radio. And please subscribe and watch all the videos. I need as many likes and thumbs up and watches and subscriptions as possible over there. I hit a certain level. I can actually start monetizing the YouTube videos and make a couple of bucks that way. And I also have some other podcast related things in the works as well as some writing things, some publishing things that might be happening. So stay tuned. I'll be breaking news on all these things through Twitter and Facebook first, then the website and then the podcast. One of those things I'll be breaking news on is an update to the Patreon page. Our Patreon campaign will be refreshed either by the end of this month or the first week of August. So stay tuned for that. That's pretty much it. I really do need to turn on the air conditioner. It's like 11 o'clock at night, but it is boiling in our home and at Monster Kid Radio Studios. So much so that my computer's been running sluggish all day. So... I need to turn the AC back on, which means I'm going to sign off by telling you Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Muggsy. That belongs to the surf band Lucky 757. They are based out of Portsmouth, Virginia, and you can find their album Lonesome Lagoon over at lucky757.bandcamp.com. It's like seven bucks for a 10-song digital album. All the songs are cool. I know I'm going to be playing them again in the future here on the show, but for now, I'm going to sign off with Muggsy. My name is Derek M. Cook. Thank you for listening. Ciao. Okay, Muggsy, start it up.
What is Joey going to do?